You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of James. Would you turn me your Bibles to James chapter 5? Uh, we're continuing our study beginning in verse 7 today, verses 7 through 11. And we're dealing with a topic that I know is, is really a favorite one. We're going to talk about patience. And to illustrate that, I'm going to talk really slow and try to be as boring as I can because I think that in your patience you possess something. Would you mind standing with me as we begin by reading this passage together? James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7. And James begins by saying, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we reflect on this issue of patience today, that you would grant us help and grace by your Holy Spirit to recognize, Lord, that this is a central dynamic of our daily life, that some of us right now are, are just hanging on by a thread and are desperate, Lord, to, to have understanding, desperate for your help, desperate for your recovery and deliverance. And so, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would use this time as we really um, reflect upon your word to give us hope, to give us strength, to give us courage and perspective as we move forward on a day-to-day -day basis. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Something's terribly wrong in America. And I don't even want you to go there. <laughs> but according to a major psychiatric journal recently, they noted that more than 36%, more than a third of teenage girls and 14% of teenage boys are clinically depressed and have had a recent what they call major depressive episode. That mental health issues are spreading like wildfire on college campuses. Ohio State recently reported that 43% increase in students seeking mental health counseling because of depression. One in 12 teens will attempt suicide. That's 8%. One in three adults, basically, in a recent survey said they're not happy with their, their un, or excuse me, two out of three adults said they're unhappy with their lives. And it's kind of uh, confusing because despite the fact that we live in one of the safest, healthiest, most prosperous times in human history, there seems to be overall an epidemic of unhappiness. In fact, if I were to sit down with you individually and go around the room, I would probably find that many, if not most of you, would say, well, I'm not happy in my life. 
which seems like a terrible contradiction and is hard for us to admit because after all, we're Christians and we're supposed to have the joy of the Lord. And yet if I'm honest, I'm going through things right now which do not make me happy about my life. When we look at it sociologically, there are so many things that we can blame for this epidemic of unhappiness. I mean, there is a constricting economy. There's the collapse of the traditional family. The social isolation is growing, ironically, as communication technology takes over our lives, that real human contact becomes more rare since we become more digitally connected and emotionally disconnected. We live in a culture that's obsessed with celebrity and beauty and brawn and brains, which, if we're honest, most of us uh, are largely uh, find those things out of reach in our lives. But still, there have been far worse times in U.S. history. There have been times of wars. There have been times of depressions and even great depressions. We've had seasons in our history, particularly in the 70s, where we saw assassinations of popular leaders. But why is it that now we are so much more pessimistic? Well, in part, the answer may be, and there are sociologists who say this is really the heart of it, And I would just put it this way, it's not what happens to you, but it's what you think about what happens to you that determines your level of happiness. It's not the things that happen to you, but how you think about the things that happen to you that really affects your level of happiness. Let me put it in the context. When I was a kid, my worldview was largely shaped by the Bible. I mean, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I I didn't grow up reading the Bible, but there was a common cultural consensus that we saw the world through the lens of Scripture. And part of that lens is to expect that we live in a broken, fallen world and that hardship and suffering and difficulty is part of that experience. For example, in Genesis 3.19, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God says part of the judgment, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. My parents used to express that differently. They said, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You know, the point is that you, you realize that if I'm going to gain anything in this life, it's going to involve the sweat of my brow. It's not going to become something that I just join a multi-market leveling thing and money immediately begins to roll into my life. That doesn't work. Even in those kind of promised schemes, people have to work their tail off in order to get ahead. That's a dynamic that governs the universe. It's not something that's just in some places at some time. It's everywhere. In fact, even when we look at the New Testament, we find Jesus saying, for example, in this world you will have trouble. Now the word trouble there literally means anguish and burdens and pressures and afflictions. And it's so common that Peter says, don't walk around acting as if something strange has happened to you, but what is happening to you is common amongst all men, even for those who are followers of Christ. Jesus' response to those troubles, he said, take heart, I've overcome the world. 
But again, in Acts 14, 22, and this is always interesting, the context is always important when we understand or interpret a scripture. But in the context, Paul and, and, and Barnabas have gone to the city of Lystra in modern day Turkey. And as they're ministering there, they pray for a man, he's healed, and he's miraculously healed so that people want to worship him as if he's Zeus, the God, the Roman God, and he forbids them to do that. And their response to be not allowed to worship him after he's done this miracle is they literally stone him to death, drag his body and throw it on the garbage heap outside town. God miraculously raises from the dead. You know, all of a sudden Paul's dead and he pops up, I'm back, you know, suddenly everybody's in, in awe. And Paul's response is, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Same word, hardships, that Jesus used. You, we must go through anguish, burdens, pressures, afflictions, if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. That's why Paul, in writing to Timothy in his last letter, as Paul is in prison, he's waiting to be executed. And he says, endure hardship. The word hardship there literally means to evil treatment, put up, bear evil treatment with us like good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And then he adds further on the hardworking. And the word hardworking literally means wearisome effort and toil. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive the share of the crops. Later he ended the letter by saying to Timothy, endure hardships, literally here, suffer evil, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So we hear these words repeated and repeated. Endure, hard work, hardship, duty. And we begin to realize that this is part of the reality of the Christian faith. My life experience, even as a young child, mirrored these kind of truths. My parents suffered through the Depression. They, my dad served in two world wars and saw people around him die. He even saw his first wife die from a sinus infection because there were no antibiotics. Life was hard. Life often was unfair. But they also recognized that there was a need to endure. I was reminded this morning as I was reflecting on this of Churchill's speech at Harrow Hall in 1941 as he's right in the middle of the World War and these young men are graduating from this elite school and they, many of them would soon find themselves on the front lines in Africa or in Europe or some other place of conflict. Many of them would lose their life. <clears throat> and his response to them, his message to them was never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and a good sense. You see, this was the view of the world of people who lived through the harshness of those times. And sadly, maybe, we've been insulated in that in ways that may make us more comfortable but may not have helped us. You see, because before long, science and technology began to promise us that we were entering into a new era of human history, an era where psychology was the new religion and, and self was the new God. Thus saith the Lord was replaced with thus saith me. The Holy Trinity was dethroned by the secular trinity of me, myself, and I. 
And as mass murderer Dylan Klebold said after the Columbine massacre, he said, my belief is that if I say something, it goes, I am the law, and if you don't like it, you die. So that what began to arise out of this new rubric was this central tenet that the central goal of life is to attain my subjective well-being. In short, the theology of meism, it's all about me being happy and getting what I want. Now, the sad thing is a recent study done by the University of California found that doing, doing this in, in about five different countries around the world, they said it appears that the pursuit of happiness tends to make individuals unhappy. That that selfish focus of seeking my happiness does not lead to happiness. In fact, it leads to unhappiness. Maybe Jesus was right when he said it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. In other words, there's more joy in the surrender of my rights and the giving of myself away in service to others than there is in just getting what I want and having my way. But what's even more sad is this kind of thinking, this meism, has actually pervaded the Christian community as well. Even the church tends to think along these lines. Because what we see is the Bible is increasingly reduced to a book of unconnected quotes and occasional pithy sayings that need to be tastefully sprinkled throughout a positive and uplifting message so that it only flavors our thoughts. It doesn't actually form them. That we find the Bible is being replaced by a never-ending series of self-help books that promise to lead us not through the narrow gate that leads to life as promised by Jesus in Matthew 7, but through a bride, broad and a wide gate that leads to therapeutic happiness here on earth right now. So it's not surprising that booksellers are peddling an endless array of best-selling titles that promise, and I literally took these off the websites, your best life now, how to like yourself, loving yourself more, healing your emotions, the me I want to be, and becoming the best version of me, and many more like it. And I found there is a theme here. Me, 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 me. It's a theme I like. Because, and, and one of the things I struggle with is I came in here today, and as I look at you right now, I realize that you have not spent your day thinking about how you can make my life better. And if you're just wondering, I can give you a list. I carry it with me. And just because it starts with a Lamborghini doesn't mean you have to be intimidated. But here's the problem. Happiness requires harmony. Happiness requires harmony. <laughs> and have you ever noticed in your life, as you're striving for the harmony of happiness, there is always someone or something that's singing off key? This world is incredibly unharmonious and a very dissonant place all the time. So that it doesn't matter. You can be the wealthiest, the most powerful, the most popular, the most beautiful person on the planet, and you're still beset with problems and conflicts. And worse yet, 
You can diet, you can exercise, you can lip, liposuck, you can Botox, you can implant, you can hormone therapy, you can nip, tuck, and roll <laughs> and make a great looking corpse, but one day you will die. Which really begs the ultimate question of life. The question that many people really don't like to think about or ask. The question that Jesus presented us with is, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? See, this is the real happiness question that people should be asking. Not how are you doing or how are you living or how is it going for you, but what are you living for? The hows change all the time. We have good days. We have bad days. And if you follow that path, you're going to be up one moment and down the next. You're going to be unst as unstable as water, the scripture says. But when you begin to look at your life through the lenses, what is it that I'm living for ultimately? Knowing that the day will come where I will either be in the box or in the can. You know, I mean, one way or another, that's, that's my destination. What is going to be the summary of what I have lived my life for? And I think what, the reason this is so hard for us to get our minds around is because we are deceived by this happiness concept. How many times a, a husband will say to his wife, I'm just not happy in this marriage. Or a wife will say to her husband, you don't make me happy anymore. As if that's some kind of definitive statement that can't be questioned or examined. There's all sorts of things that make me unhappy every day. It has nothing to do with the purpose of my life. Nor does it necessarily affect whether I have joy. Notice that when James writes this letter, he never uses the word happy. In fact, the equivalent Greek, Eutyches in Greek, never appears once in the entire New Testament. In other words, what I'm saying to you is they had a word in Greek for happy that they could have used. They never used it. Instead, what they used the word is blessed. And the reason is because happiness does depend upon circumstances. It depends on things going the way I want them to go. It depends on me getting what I want when I want it in the manner and time and shape and form that I want to have it. That's why the Bible uses the word blessed. When, when he says in our passage, we consider blessed those who are persevere. Reading that and thinking about it, I think to myself, not really that when we see somebody who is going through something, enduring something, persevering through something, many times we may feel sorry for them. Many times we would say, I wish they could get through that, especially if the person we're talking about is you yourself. Rarely do we sit in the midst of adversity and say, I am so blessed to be enduring this right now. And yet that's exactly what the Bible says should be our perspective. Because blessedness is a state of fulfillment and peace that we feel because we know that what we're doing is pleasing to God. We know that we're involved in ultimate purpose and that the progress we're making may not be easy, but it's not temporary. 
Happiness is a temporary state of being. But being blessed is a permanent state of being because it transcends time. It's an eternal dynamic that God has blessed me with the saving grace of Jesus Christ and that can never be taken from me and I will just see the greater fulfillment the day I leave this world and am in His presence so that my life becomes blessed because of the eternal dynamic of the Holy Spirit. You see, in reality, true happiness comes through harmony with God, not harmony in the world. Harmony with God, we have another word for it. It's called holiness. Harmony with God means that there is no holes in my life. I am wholly completed and fulfilled in Him that despite things that may be going on in my body, despite things that may be going in my personal life, I know that I am whole in Christ. I am in harmony with Him. And if I am in harmony with Him, it doesn't matter what's going on around the world. The problem for many of us is we're defined by our disappointments. So that you talk to people and you're saying, well, how are you doing? Oh, this fell through and that happened and this person did this to me and this took place and I've got this disease and I've got this thing and that thing. And we're defined by those things instead of being defined by the divine grace that has been given to us. In this world, Jesus said, you will have troubles. Let me add to that. In this world, you will have repeated disappointments. People and things and situations will not go the way you want them. But if you allow yourself to be defined by the ups and downs of the constantly changing dynamics of this world, you will be the double-minded man that he talked about earlier in chapter 1. You'll be unstable in all your ways. You'll be all over the board. You know, you'll be that kind of person that before anybody walks in the house, they're going to throw their hat in and see how many bullet holes it gets before it hits the ground. And if it gets really riddled, they'll just say, I'll come back later. This must not be a good time. When the truth of the matter is that those times that we go through that are difficult, that are disappointing, are things that wean us off the addiction to getting our own way. And force us to find Him in the midst of our circumstances. As C.S. Lewis put it so simply, to be surprised by joy. To be surprised by joy. I remember one time my mom said to me, I don't understand you guys. I said, what do you mean? She said, you go through some terrible things, but you guys don't seem to be depressed. I said, well, to be honest, there are times. (laughs) But the reality is you discover that God does cause all things to work for the good. That before you can build the house, you have to excavate the foundation. And right now, God is just doing some excavation work. And I can't see what's being built, but I know that He is excavating my life so that he might lay a deeper foundation because the deeper the foundation, the higher the building can go. If we have a shallow foundation, there's not much space to build. But here's the problem. Harmony with God can become complicated because often it's not appreciated by the world in which we live in. Jesus warned us in Luke 21. He said, 
all men will hate you because of me. (laughs) I keep on wanting to edit that. There'll be some people who will not like you. (laughs) No, he says, all men will hate you because of me. Sooner or later, every one of you will have a reason to hate me. Yeah. I mean, it's just the way it is. He just said, understand this, that this is not a popularity thing. Following me will not make you famous. And and people won't say, oh, isn't it amazing the faith that he has or she has for God? He says, actually, it'll create an adversarial relationship. He said, Jesus said, woe to you when men speak, all men speak well of you, for that is how their father treated the false prophets. Again, Churchill in that same speech at Harrow made this comment. He says, you have enemies? Good. That means you're standing up for something sometime in your life. Essentially, if you stand up for something, if you take your stand and say, here I am, I'm available to God and you can do whatever you want, you are going to find that there are going to be people who are going to be angrily opposed. As the story that Bruce and Shelley were just sharing with us, you think about it, here's a village who has a chance to get another well and good things are happening. Here's a village where people have been healed of diseases and instead of celebrating it, it raises opposition and we go, what's wrong with this? And the answer is real simple. The adversary, our devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Jesus put it simply in, Matthew, in John chapter 3, he says, men will hate the light and won't want to come into it because it exposes that their deeds are evil. I mean, let's be honest. None of us likes those kind of conversations. You know, if my wife says to me, we need to talk. <laughs> my first reaction is, no, we don't. <laughs> I need to cut the grass. <laughs> I need to climb Everest, but we don't need to talk. <laughs> None of us likes those kind of conversations. And he says, men do not want to have that conversation with God because if they come into my presence, they have to own stuff that they don't want to own. They would rather pretend it's not there or it doesn't matter. And yet Jesus says, but that's the only way you can be set free. Because don't you find after you have that conversation with a person, and more importantly, when you have that conversation with God, that rather than being filled with shame and remorse, there's this lifting of the weight of the sin that you've been carrying. But all that kind of explains why James began this letter by saying to us in the first chapter, remember, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. Here now we find, he repeats three times in our reading, be patient, be patient and stand firm, be patient in the face of suffering. Now keep in mind, this patience is not the kind of patience that you have to show when your plane is late, your flight is delayed, or your Amazon order doesn't show up when promised. You know, oh, I just need to have patience. No. This is the grueling, grinding, painful perseverance that Paul was referring to in the previous message when we talked about injustice. The context again. What is he talking about previously? These people who are powerful and wealthy and they're oppressing God's people unjustly. And he says, what you need to do is to be patient 
The word makrothumeo in the Greek literally means to bravely endure misfortunes, troubles, offenses, and injuries. Understand that that description, those, that list of misfortunes and troubles along with offenses and injuries, there are things that are just simply circumstantial to my life. There are misfortunes and there are troubles that come into my life that are unfortunate And there are other things, things like offenses and injuries that are brought to my life through other people's neglect, incompetence, or even ill purpose. And he says what we need to do is learn how to persevere patiently without reacting, without striking out, without seeking vengeance, without seeking to settle the score, without trying to balance out the universe through our own Twisted karmic concepts. To illustrate what he's talking about, he gives us three examples in the text. First, he talks about the slow daily grind of farmers. When I was growing up, I worked on farms a lot, but beginning at the age of 12. That's, my parents told me, if you want to make money, go get a job. And so I worked on farms. I did all sorts of farm work and uh, And one of the things I found out was that this was not an occupation or career I wanted to go into. These guys worked harder than anybody I ever met in my life and faced more uncertainty (laughs) every year than, than I could ever have handled. But these farmers that he's talking about are particularly unique in the fact that they are Middle Eastern farmers. And Middle Eastern farmers are dry farmers. They don't have great rivers that they can irrigate. They did that in Egypt. They did that in Mepstema. Not in Palestine. There's water there, you just can't get to it very easily. So how do they grow their crops? They are dry farmers. They plow the field, they plant the seed, and they pray for rain. And God's promise to Israel was, if you're faithful to me, I'll bring you the fall rains and I'll bring you the spring rains, the the latter and former rains. So it will rain after you've planted your crops, and then it will rain right before you harvest to give it that extra burst but you're just going to have to trust me. And how they understood that. When Paul said to the Corinthians, only God makes a thing grow. That's why you find farmers tend to be men and women of faith. They recognize that you can do everything that you know to do, and you can do it with great skill, but nothing guarantees that you're going to have a harvest, much less a bountiful one. Because in these farmers' case, in this context, if that harvest failed, they perished. They weren't just planting crops in order to have a bounty that they could sell someplace. If it failed, there was no money. Soon there would be no food. And after that, there would be just disease and death. This was critically important. That essentially, they had to trust God in painful uncertain circumstances. He next turns our focus to the prophets. The prophets, we often think about them as being these great men of God who kind of swaggered through their towns and villages, pontificating and having people you know, placate them and fall in prostration before them. The truth of the matter is, most of the time, they were rejected and they were persecuted. That's why when you read Jeremiah, we describe him as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he cried a lot. He was a real whiner. Really, I mean, I'm sorry to pick on him, but he was, he's just a whiner, and I, I find a lot, of, a lot of identification with him. 
In their lifetimes, they were mostly despised and mostly rejected. In fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because he says, you build tombs for the prophets and decorate their graves, but they're the ones that your fathers murdered in the first place. So, you know, I've often thought about people who think about, well, I'm concerned about my legacy. You know what the problem with the legacy is? You're not around to enjoy it. And if anybody enjoys it, it's one of your relatives who didn't do anything but just happened to have your name. So there you go. Well, prophet, it's such great honoring the prophet after he's been murdered by your fathers and you build this great tomb to him saying, yeah, wasn't he wonderful? We just didn't notice that while he was still here. In fact, we kind of hated what he was saying because he was in our face. And what James is trying to say is we look at these men and we realize they had to cuss God in painful, uncertain circumstances. And then lastly, he turns our attention to Job. Talk about a life of senseless injustice that's beyond our control. We read that in a day, innocent Job loses his job his house, his family, his health, his wealth, his reputation, even his friends. And what does he tell us? Well, he was forced to trust God in uncertain and painful circumstances. But James also goes on to tell us, don't look at the beginning of the situation. Don't even look at the middle of the situation. <laughs> But already says, look to the end of Job's story. Again, he writes, we consider those blessed who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. And I underline in my Bible that word, finally. Because that's the way I feel sometimes. Finally. Finally, God, you show me what you've been doing all this time. Finally, it all makes sense. But I recognize that in my lifetime, there will be some things that will never be underlined by finally. There will be things that I will not understand until I get on the other side of earth and I'm in heaven and I'll look at it and I'll go, finally, and I'll realize what I thought was a curse was actually God's blessing in my life. Because I found this about God. He never takes anything away from you except to make room for something new. I remember when my wife and I were looking to build our, or buy our first house and we lived in a small community in Oregon. And my dad decided he was going to help us get into our first home. And so he was a real estate broker. And he was driving me around to all these different properties. And we came to this one house situated right on a river. It was a, basically more of a log cabin, the house built right on the, the soil uh, with plywood doors and holes in them to open and close them with a big spring attached. And you might say it was kind of a simple makeshift place. And I remember sitting down with my dad and the owner of the home who wanted to sell it and my dad was kind of blunt and direct. I don't know where I got it, but maybe it was from him. And he was kind of blunt and direct. And, and the guy, he says, what do you want for it? And the guy says, well, I want this much. And my dad said, hey, let's just be frank. All you have here is a piece of dirt. If we bought this, we just push this thing over and build something new. And I got real uncomfortable because I thought, you're talking about this guy's house. And astonishingly, he looked at him and said, well, you're right but I still want that much money. 
so we didn't do that. But sometimes we can hang on to something that we think is so precious and so valuable and so important and so critical. That, that I worked for that. I built that. It's my reputation. It's what people think of me. It's all, we, we get to these things and we suddenly realize we're clinging to rubble that God says, listen, listen, would you just get out of the way and just let me bulldoze it and I'll replace it with something better? Do you really want me to build your life into something that you can look back and say, now that was a life well lived? I don't know about you, but I, I, I think about this a lot. I think about lying on my deathbed. If God gives me that chance to be conscious in those last moments and doesn't take me out in a millisecond of unexpected tragedy, well, tragedy for me, some of you might be happy, in a moment of tragedy, and I, but if I sit there and I am, am laying there and, and you, know, you picture all of your loved ones around you mourning and feeling bad and going over the will, and you know, <laughs> as you're laying there, to be able to look back on your life and say, I lived it well. I did this right. I didn't do it perfectly. There were some high times. There were some low times. There were times that, that I did amazingly smart things. And I, sometimes I did some incredibly stupid things. But on whole, you look back and say, it is well with my soul. I'm ready to go home to be a Jesus because as Paul said, I have fought the good fight of faith and I've finished my course and now I'm ready to be delivered because I know that there is waiting for me a crown of righteousness that is for all those who love his appearing. There are three things in conclusion that James says that these men and women of great faith great patience and perseverance and endurance. Three things that they had going for them. Uh, the first one is they didn't grumble. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, James actually said, don't grumble against each other. And this is a very specific word in the original language because it encompasses this idea of complaining or begrudging others and bemoaning them and murmuring against them. I like the word whine. You know, W-H-I-N-E, not W-I-N-E. I like the word wine. I would translate it if, <laughs> if somebody was crazy enough to entrust such a task to me. I'd write, stop whining. And the reason I would say that is because that's what I do a lot. I was listening to an interview of the late Leonard Cohen. He made something interesting. He said, the purpose of boot camp in the military is to get you to stop whining. To get you to stop whining. And just focus on doing your duty. You know, meism is all about whining. Life's not fair. I got passed over. They didn't appreciate what I did. They don't recognize how hard I've worked, what I've given. And I'm only saying this because it's Father's Day. <laughs> But we just got to stop it. Why? Because listen to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Beatitudes. Blessed are you. He didn't say happy are you. There's some weak translations that render this happy are you. But that's not the Greek. <laughs> he says blessed are you when people insult you. When they persecute you and 
falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Now, you know, if you have a conversation with somebody and they start insulting you and, and, and working against your welfare and say all kinds of evil things about you that you've never even had the chance to do. That's the hard part. You know, you say, I'm doing all these bad things. You haven't even given me a chance to do them yet. Let me do them first so I at least have the experience. But they're saying all these bad things about you and you're innocent as the day is long. And yet he said, instead of saying, that's not fair, that's not right, how dare they do? Instead he said, you should start rejoicing saying, God, thank you. Because the payoff is going to be incredible. To think about it, I mean, if you think about it in a kind of financial terms, how would you feel if every time somebody came up to you and insulted you, they had to give you $5,000? Wouldn't you go fishing for insults? <laughs> Wouldn't you go? Because the payoff is so incredible. My goodness, you are so stupid. Thank you. Hallelujah! That Lamborghini's getting closer all the time. <laughs> well, that's kind of a crass way of putting it, I suppose. But essentially, that's what Jesus is saying. Rejoice. Because that doesn't, that doesn't get missed putting in my ledger. I'm keeping record of all these things that you endured because you chose to follow me. And all those insults and all those things that are said falsely against you and all the persecution and things. I'm keeping record of all of that. And one day there will be a great reward. They didn't grumble and they didn't forget what their goal was. He said, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. They didn't forget the fact that where I'm going is not here. I'm not living for time. I am living for eternity. I know that one day I'm going to be standing before his presence, and that's really the moment I'm living for. It's not this next 10 minutes or this next 10 years that I'm living for. What I'm living for is that moment when this life will be over and I'm in his presence. That's how they persevered. They didn't forget what the real goal was. Thirdly, they didn't forget who their God was either. The Lord, he says, is full of compassion and mercy. They didn't forget who our God was. That God isn't a God who got my file mixed up with somebody else. I kind of think that's the whole entire book of Job. At least the first 38 chapters is Job trying to say, somebody pulled the wrong file. This isn't supposed to be happening to me. I'm the innocent guy, you know. It's like getting arrested because you have the same name of some other perp. And you're going around, wait a minute, that's not me. That's Job. He says, this is wrong because bad people have bad things happen to me because they're bad. I'm a good guy and I'm having bad things happen to me, but I'm good. This makes no sense. And finally, at the end, God says, really, what do you really know anyway? And we can sit there and say, gosh, that's so unfair what happened to Job. Think about it for a moment. For 4,000 years, people like you and me have been reading his story and, and going away and saying, thank you, God, for what you did to Job because it helps me understand what's going on in my life right now. See, God was thinking about how you and I could read that book and we could have hope and confidence and trust in the goodness and the gracious of God. He was thinking about you and I right now today when he was taking Job through the most horrific series of events 
so horrific that I can't honestly, truthfully tell you that I have any inkling of what that must have been like. But thank God I don't have to experience everything for myself. I can learn vicariously from looking at the life of others. See, I don't mean to minimize what you're going to, through. But I just am reminded of one other thing that Churchill once said. He said, attitude is a little thing that makes a big difference. What is your attitude towards whatever challenges you're facing right now? It's amazing how many little things we can get a bad attitude over. You know, if it's Father's Day, Dad, and you're expecting, you know, for laurels and garlands and, you know, and, and your family having you walk in the room as they've prepared the, the most incredible meal that you've ever seen and you can hear everybody in the background, hallelujah, hallelujah, you know. And you come home and you look around and you say, what's going on? They say, well... We're watching the game. The Mariners may win. You know, it's one of those kind of events. I mean, and you realize they forgot, <laughs> even though they were reminded at church not to forget. Right now, you can see people with panicked looks on their face. <laughs> Our attitude, though, says so much about us. In First Thessalonians, Paul in the last chapter, he's giving his closing exhortations. He says this, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. And do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not put the flame of faith of the Holy Spirit out by a bad attitude. You know, most of life does not unfold in the ways that I have planned. Sometimes I, more times than often, I'm surprised by the fact that God actually has it all under control and knows exactly what He's doing. And little by little, hopefully, we begin to learn through the process that, you know, I can trust Him with this. Yeah, this, this is pretty sucky right now. In fact, you know, one of my personal adages is life sucks, but God's good. Because not just for myself, but I, I get the opportunity to be involved in a lot of people's lives. And usually they want me involved in their life when their life is really at an unfun point. It's death, it's disease, it's, it's drunkenness, it's addiction. It's divorce. You know, it's disappointment. And you realize that this is really part of the fabric of, of, of living on this broken, fallen world. And the only way you get out of it without being, in the first part of my message, the depressed, is to recognize that God is working through all of this stuff for His glory. And as I respond to Him, it also brings my blessing. His glory that bestows great grace upon my life. Because one day I will be laying there 
and hopefully loved ones will be gathered around. And I'll be able to look at my life, even if I'm all by myself, I'll be able to look back on my life and say, I'm glad I made the choices I made. I'm glad I decided to follow Jesus. I'm glad I decided to say, Lord, whatever you want, however you want it, take my life. It belongs to you. Do whatever you want with it. I'm glad I said that. And I'm glad that when those times I tried to take it back, you wouldn't let me. When I was first a Christian, I remember up in the early morning I was praying. We had a little prayer closet and you had to get on your knees to crawl into it. And I would sit in this little tiny enclosure and I would just pray. And I remember I, I, didn't, I didn't intend. I don't know if you've ever had this where you're praying and suddenly something comes out that you want to take back. But I prayed this prayer. I said, Lord, I pray that you'd teach me patience. And honestly, I mean, not exaggerating, I literally said, I mean, what I mean, Lord, is I didn't really mean that. I mean, what I, that's not really what I want. I mean, I'm, I'm having this conversation with God. You know, it's like, this, this guy has really, really got problems. I'm trying to take back what I just asked. And suddenly I just realized, oh, stink. He's already heard me. And he's going to do that. Why doesn't he answer that Lamborghini prayer? Why does he keep on answering this kind of prayer? Because God knows that I need to be in that place where uh, I'm trusting God in painful, in painful and uncertain circumstances. Father, I pray that you'd help us to hear your heart. I pray you'd help us to know your mind and understand your ways that you've told us clearly in your own word that, that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts. In fact, there is such a gap between you and us. You said it's like as far as the heavens are above the earth so far are your ways and your thoughts than from ours. But you have, Paul said, given us the mind of Christ. You have placed inside of us your Holy Spirit that can begin to minister to us and speak in the language of heaven and help us to reject the voices of earth. God, we pray that you would help us to make that distinction, to make that discernment, to make that separation in our mind, that we bring our thoughts into your captivity and we'd reject every thought that exalts itself above and beyond the knowledge of God. And we would let our thoughts be taken captive. That you are a God who is good and you are a God who is gracious and you are a God who is great and you are a God who is living in us and working through us even when we don't see it. Always and forever that you might be glorified and that we might be blessed. We pray, God, that you'd grant us that perspective, that clarity. In Jesus' name, amen.